Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Dr. Mark Knoll. He's Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at Notre Dame, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2006, he received the National Endowment for the Humanities Medal at a White House ceremony. and He's the author of many books, uh, including The Civil War as a Theological Crisis, America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, In the Beginning Was the Word, The Bible in American Life, 1492 to 1783, and most recently, America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, 1794 to 1911. Mark, it's great to have you back here. Thanks so much. Well, my privilege, Al. It's a a, uh, delight to speak with you again. Let's talk about this. I mean, most people would take it as, I think most uh, Christians would take it as almost axiomatic that the Bible has played an important role in American history. But you're, you talk about a Bible civilization. Uh, right. And I think that's a phrase that people are not accustomed to hearing. Um, yes. Tell me—go ahead. In, in the early United States, the, the civic question above all others is how would a republic— survive. So there's not going to be any king, there's no uh, hereditary aristocracy, there's no well-respected universities. And the theory of a republic is that you had to have virtue in the people. You had to have responsible, self-directed individuals who who would act uh, virtuously. It was a largely Protestant country at the time, and the idea in many different kinds of Protestant minds was the King James Version of the Bible would provide the moral stability without which republics had to fail. So so there was an entire set of uh, enterprises. The American Bible Society, 1816, was one foundation of uh, voluntary societies to spread Christian literature in the absence of almost uh, any nationwide governmental authority. So the idea was the Bible, the King James Version, the Protestant Bible, would provide the moral grounding that a republic, a free country, needs. The rise was through the first three or four uh, decades of the 19th century. The decline came because Protestants couldn't agree with each other, because there came to be, as your listeners know well, a rising tide of Catholics who Mm -hmm. certainly respected Scripture, but didn't want to be forced, for example, in almost all the public schools that were founded in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, demanded that there'd be daily readings from the King James Bible. Right. Right. And eventually there would be, of course, Jews and then those who didn't want any part of traditional religion. The main problem, however, was Protestants just could not agree on what the Bible said concerning the morality of slavery. From the mid-1820s, 1830 following, uh, there were just uh, dozens, maybe hundreds, of public statements the Bible supports, the Bible attacks, the Bible undermines, the Bible is firm yeah. for the, the slave system the United States had. So the people who worked so hard to have a moral basis for a republic found themselves in confronting the republic's most crucial moral and political problem, speaking with actually more than two voices, but with very, very decidedly contrary voices. What, what role had the scriptures played in justifying the break with uh, England and then exhorting the colonists to fight uh, for the independence? 
quite an interesting question. Um, everyone, well, virtually everyone at the time, referred to the scriptures. So if you were a patriot, you said the king was like Pharaoh, and the patriots are like the children of Israel. And very soon, of course, we had a Moses, which was George Washington, <laughs> who would lead the people to the freedom of the promised land. If you were a loyalist, and you felt that uh, the parliament was making mistakes, but it was still a, a good system, then you thought just the reverse. You, th- you thought that the uh, patriots were the Canaanites who were attacking the people of God. <laughs> if you were black and realized that there was at least a chance of liberation from slavery from the British, then you actually had a complete reverse. There were, there were slaves who were emancipated by the British in, uh, in South Carolina who said, isn't it wonderful to escape from Pharaoh, meaning the patriots, The difference between the Revolutionary period and what came in the 19th century was, for the British colonies, the Bible is a very important part of their lives, but it's in the background. When uh, Protestant Britain had 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 the series of wars with Catholic France, Britons of all sorts said the Bible is our book of freedom, and those poor Catholics are tyrannized, they can't have access to the Bible, and so Britain is a land of Protestant freedom. There's not actually a lot of reasoning from the Bible during the Revolutionary era. There's a little bit. There were, there were loyalists who said, look, if you really believe Romans 13, the powers that be ordained by God, you can't be just throwing off the monarch in, in the way you're doing. And, there, and then there were some pretty serious patriots who responded, no, these are unusual circumstances. But mostly, the Bible was a, a, a treasured resource of emblems. Continental Congress asked Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin to come up with a seal for the United States. They eventually came up with what's on our dollar bills today, but the original proposal was an image of the children of Israel being led by the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. Hmm. What changed in, in the eight, immediately after the Revolutionary War, and this is why the date 1794 is in the title, was Tom Paine who had been a big promoter of the, of the revolution, published in that year, 1794, a book called The Age of Reason, Attacking the Bible. There was a huge outcry all across the Protestant spectrum and by a Jewish author as well to say, no, 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 the Bible's important. We have to have the scriptures as the basis for our religious lives. And from that point on, people began to turn more to the scriptures for the sake of argument as well as for the sake of emblems. And that's what would lead in the 1830s to the real crisis, because public public figures were trying to say, well, can we justify slavery from the Bible, or no. should we condemn slavery from the Bible? And amongst Protestants, it was just a huge, huge disagreement. So, so Tom Page, Tom Paine, in his Age of Reason, uh, I mean, he had been kind of a hero of the fight oh, against much. Great Britain. <laughs> and now he was attacking the scriptures uh, right. that had been appealed to in, to some degree. Uh, oh, exactly. I mean, and, by and the patriots. Paine's common sense in 1776 was the pamphlet that convinced American patriots the problem was not just a few misguided steps of Parliament, but was the monarchy itself. Yeah. And this pamphlet was powerful and. A good portion of it was taken up with Paine's interpretation of Old Testament Israel asking the Lord for a king. And he quoted 
the prophet Samuel and said, well, you can have a king, but this is going to be all the, the list of troubles. And, and that was a convincing argument. But now here, 20 years later, Payne, who says, well, we escaped from the monarchy, that was good. We now have to escape from the thraldom, the mistakes, the tyranny of a, this old religion. Payne, Payne was not an atheist. He, he wanted a kind of enlightened religion. But the, the, uh, his, his fame and uh, respect and, and the, the status he enjoyed in the 1770s was, was reversed entirely, and he became a pariah. Uh, he, he just, wow. it's, it's unbelievable to read the 80 or so publications. The, this is the first public event outside of political ones that has a mass printing discussion oh. in the new American nation, and just with one or two exceptions. So this was not just an argument among uh, elite leaders. This was a popular Everything, debate. right. If there were elites who said, well, Paine's view in the Bible will ruin society, and it's untrue. There were sectarians, Baptists, and, and others who, who didn't like uh, the Federalist Party. They said, well, we do agree with Paine's politics, but he's just dead wrong in the Bible. So there was just a massive, across-the-board rejection. And that, uh, I think, in, in my interpretation, is what, what turned public life in the United States to look more directly for scriptural guidance to give a republic, a democratic republic, a free republic, what it needed. So it moved from using the scriptures as a uh, kind of a quarry for emblems um, and, you know, uh, important um, images uh, to, uh, after after Thomas Paine, it turns to trying to ferret out the, con- the actual content and teaching of the text. Much more, right. I mean, the, the, the emblems were still there. I and mean, once you get to the Civil War, you can imagine if you were a Confederate, Lincoln would be Pharaoh, and if you were, if right. you were in the North, eventually yeah. Lincoln would, would be, uh, you know, after, after he was assassinated, you know, almost like Jesus to, to many people. But, but the emblems didn't fade, but the arguments grew much more intense and much more specific. Mm. You make a distinction uh, between custodial and sectarian Protestants. That's a distinction probably unfamiliar to most of us. Uh, and tell me how they function in the early years. Right. Uh, I'm treating the custodial Protestants as the older, more traditional denominations that, that were dominant in the colonial period. So these would have been the Congregationalists in New England, the Presbyterians in the Middle Colonies, the Episcopalians, or they, they were Anglicans in the colonial period, they were, who were uh, primarily in the South, but then elsewhere as well. These groups felt that in the new United States there could be an adjustment of European Christendom, where there were official ties between church and state. For the most part, these churches didn't, did not want official ties between church and state, although in New England the Congregationalists did. But they thought, well, we, we are the learned people. We are the ones who will be able to guide the new nation in its moral course. Against them stood Protestants like the Baptists, eventually the followers of Alexander Campbell that would lead to the founding of the Churches of Christ, Disciples of Christ. And they said, no, 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 no. In the free United States, in, the, in this gift of Republican democracy, the people should be the democratic people should be the ones who decide what's moral. And there are fierce battles between the Congregationalists, Presbyterians on the one side, the Baptists, and eventually the Restorationists on the other side, who, who uh, were on the opposite sides politically. The Baptists, like Thomas Jefferson, the 
Presbyterian congregations thought if Thomas Jefferson was elected, you'd have to bury your Bibles because people would be after them. Churches would be closed. Uh, didn't happen, of course, but there was just fierce political yeah. and, and cultural division. The Methodists are kind of in between. They're they're um, they just don't do politics. And and my own reading of the early 19th century is that the Methodists who just stayed away from politics were the most important factor in the rapid Christianization that took place in the early history of the, the Republic. Yeah, faster, much faster than the rise of population. Yeah, I, I saw that in the book, that the rise of Methodism ranks among the most important developments in the early history of the United States. I had no idea it had that kind of uh, elevated status. Uh, did did yes, they... Eventually, Methodists will... will I mean, in, in the South, they become Confederates. White, white Methodists become Confederates. In the North, they become Union. Yeah. There's a big African, African uh, uh, Methodist... Uh, movement that leads to the formation of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and, and other things. But they, they really were uh, very important, and, and for the sake of this book, they were important because they conceived of their task as proclaiming a straightforward Bible message pared down to basically, we are sinners, we need God's grace, here's how God's grace can be manifest. Yeah. And, and so what was the message that one needed to be born again then uh, right. essential to good citizenship? Right, exactly. Yeah, uh, Mark, hold it there. We'll come back in just a few minutes. We've got to take a break. My guest, Dr. Mark Knoll, is the author of America's Book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, 1794 to 1911. Uh, again, this is a, it's just a real eye-opener for those of us interested in the relationship between uh, church and world, Christ and culture. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Mark Knoll. He's the author, most recently, of America's Book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, uh, in the first segment, we were talking about uh, just the important role that the Bible uh, played. Uh, American Protestants, and I should remember, uh, America in this era was clearly Protestant. There were 4,700 places of worship, and uh, only 65 of those were Catholic. <laughs> there were a handful of Jewish, so this was dominantly a, a Protestant uh, culture. And uh, they believed that uh, they could, in fact, uh, replace the structures of formal Christendom that were there on the continent and in Great Britain with an informal Christendom relying on the, on the scriptures. And uh, we're talking about how this developed into what can be called a Bible civilization and then the problems uh, that occurred when there was confusion uh, over how to interpret Scripture, especially as we approach uh, the problem of slavery in the Civil War. How how long, Mark, did—I'm uh, I, trying to think, who would have been representative of this principle of we're uh, replacing the formal Christendom of the continent with this informal Christendom relying on the Bible— were there any particular figures that were uh, 
you know, publicly recognized as making that case? Yes, yes, there were. Um, not, they're not individuals who would, um, with the exception maybe of uh, John Quincy Adams, who's, who's interesting. He's a, he's a Unitarian, and so other Protestants would have said he's not Orthodox. Right. But yeah. he was a lifelong Bible reader and a, a defender of of um, New England's moderate congregational establishment. Uh, Massachusetts doesn't stop taxing people for the support of. They were, they were called the local churches. They were all congregational churches until 1833. Mm-hmm. Uh, the founders of the American Bible Society in 1816 uh, uh, did believe in religious freedom. They didn't want to con- coerce anyone to do anything. But they also, uh, just shortly after they were organized, uh, uh, did, a pamphlet, uh, did a petition to Congress trying to get a better kind of paper, I think it was sent from Italy, into the United States without tariffs, because they argued the Bible is just the, the book that is necessary for um, social well-being. Hmm. Um, into the 1830s, a, a, a prominent senator from New Jersey by the name of Theodore Frulingheisen became known as a Christian statesman for, for two very interesting uh, uh, at, at points of advocacy that he made as a senator. And, and this, I think, gives us a clue today as to how complicated things were. He was a very strong advocate for ending the movement of the U.S. mails on Sunday. He thought that a, a, a society that did not honor the Lord's Day would be a society that came under condemnation of God. And Frulingheisen was the leading voice in the United States Senate who attacked President Jackson in his effort to remove the Cherokee and other Native Americans from Georgia and the southeastern United States. So we have this person who became known as the Christian statesman arguing that a a moral society with a Christian foundation should honor the Sabbath and should treat marginalized people fairly, especially marginalized people with whom the United States had made formal treaties that now they were breaking and sending the Cherokee and the, and the Creeks and other, other Native Americans to, to Oklahoma. So uh, the idea that you, you could have freedom and a voluntarily uh, organized Christian regime, and of course when they said Christian they usually meant Protestant, sure. uh, was, a, was a widely spread uh, idea, okay. and, and it didn't really come to an end until this controversy over slavery became so intense that it just it made it impossible to say, well, here's the Protestant view. And, of course, by that time, by the 1830s and 40s, the, there's, there's the Catholic uh, immigration has surged, and, and there are Catholic voices that are saying, well, yes, we need a moral moral republic, but, but we can't do it on the basis of the King James Bible. Yeah, yeah. Did the Jacksonian uh, movement, the Jacksonian democracy movement, did that have an impact on this... Uh, understanding of a nation that took made the Bible central to its self-understanding? Yes, it did, in a number of ways, although it needs to be pointed out, and probably better than I did in the book, that Jackson himself is an odd odd person. I mean, in this, in this regard, for the purposes of what we're talking about, he, he was famous for having many duels. He, he was uh, famous for... for uh, getting angry, kind of viciously angry at his political opponents, but he also was a lifetime Bible reader. 
his his uh, wife, who he who died shortly before he took office as president, was was a very serious uh, Presbyterian. Hmm. And Jackson, toward the end of his life, uh, did actually formally join the Presbyterian Church. He, when the minister insisted that he had to uh, ask forgiveness of his enemies, which he, he was reluctant to do, but, but, but finally did. And, and however, he's also the key figure in, in moving the main conception of the United States from a republic that happens to be democratic, or moving in a democratic direction, to a democracy trying to make a republic work. Yeah. That, that's a significant change, because when you switch to emphasize democracy, you're emphasizing the will of the people. So long as you emphasize the republic, you are stressing the need for, for especially the leaders, but then the people in general, to have the kind of virtue that a free government requires. So that yes, that was a, a, a very important move. Um, the churches uh, adapted. All of them became more democratic, and, and particularly once Massachusetts gave up its congregational establishment, then none of the churches uh, asked for formal recognition by the state of the churches per se. They would they would ask for uh, allowances and, and things. Uh, but 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 yes, it, it was a big a big change. Did when when does the when does the problem of interpretation? begin striking people uh, as a problem? You mentioned slavery, but when does the argument right. on behalf of slavery from the Bible, when does that actually begin? Well, it begins uh, just as soon as there is a, a Bible-based complaint against enslavement, which actually comes quite late, re- remarkably late. We, we think, looking back today, just isn't it self-evident that this slavery has moral problems? Right, right. When, when uh, English... Uh, anti-slavery sentiment arose in the late 1760s and early 1770s. Immediately, there were publications, uh, often by people with experience in the, in the West Indies, which, which had a large, larger slave population than the American colonies, who said, no, 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 there's, of course, problems in how uh, slavery is operated, but, but look at the Israelites and, and the, 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 the quotation from Leviticus chapter 25, a text that this doesn't get too much attention, usually. <laughs> just just keep coming, because in Leviticus 25, Moses says to the Israelites, you may capture people from the tribes around you and enslave them for life and pass them on to your descendants. Mm. Well, yeah. Moses said it also in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Abraham had slaves. And then uh, as time went on, the arguments moved more to the New Testament. Jesus uh, uh, abridged and changed and developed many, many things from the Hebrew Scriptures from the Old Testament, but he did not say a single word condemning Roman slavery. And the Apostle Paul, many times in his letters, says to servants, and everybody knew that that was the word for slaves, obey your masters in, in the Lord. Yeah. So that that argument developed. At the same time, there were many people who said, look, you can't, you can't believe the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and, and, and treat, your, treat people as objects and, and, and enslave them. Uh, there were uh, eager Bible students on the abolitionist side who pointed out that Moses condemned man-stealers to death. Mm. How can you have a slave system if people have not been stolen? And <laughs> So the, the battle went back and forth, and, and, and 
and uh, actually, it's, it's very interesting that at the, at the time of the Civil War, particularly, the editors of Catholic newspapers say many times in many ways, you know why we're fighting a civil war? It's because these Protestants that are so dominant in both parts of the United States are at each other's throats, and these Protestants are all appealing to the Bible, and they're all creating the moral and now military confusion that's led to the civil war. That argument is actually there a little bit earlier. Uh, uh, bishop John, well, John Carroll, before he was the first uh, Catholic bishop, had written a defense of Catholicism in the uh, mid-1780s. It was actually a part of a, a controversy that was very genteel by later standards. But, but he, he tried to point out that, that uh, what Catholics have is an authoritative interpretation from Scripture, which avoids the problem that Protestants have right. of different groups saying, well, no, this is the truth. And actually, in the 1780s, there's not nearly as wide a variety of Protestant interpretations of the Bible as it would become over the next 50 and 60 years. Right, right. Um, so, so what did the Catholic, did that principle of magisterial interpretation that Catholics uh, hold so high, did that actually help uh, Catholics in the way that they reacted to slavery? Or were they pretty much influenced by the region? That no, uh, that's an interesting question, uh, uh, because uh, it's been really, really good uh, writing, maybe just in the last 20 years, John Noonan, uh, John McGreevy at uh, Notre Dame, uh, Judge John Noonan, have all talked about Catholics and enslavement and, and attitudes toward enslavement. And again, the, the picture is a little bit complicated. Um, uh, Pope Gregory, the I'm not going to get his number right, but in the uh, 1830s, issued a very strong uh, encyclical condemning the slave trade. And there were uh, American readers who said, this, this is so close to condemning slavery itself that we, we can celebrate this. There were actually liberal Protestants who read this papal document in public and said, for once, these people that we just don't like have said the right thing. <laughs> on, on the ground in America, however, there just is no Catholic, uh, serious Catholic anti-slavery agitation until way, till way later. I mean, uh, okay. Orestes Brownson and the, bishop, and the Cincinnati Bishop John Baptist Purcell were the first ones in the 1860s who said the Christian faith should come out against slavery. The reason was... Most of the strongest anti-slave people were also the strongest anti-Catholic people yeah. in the United yeah. States. And so <laughs> whatever disposition there was to be against slavery was checked by the fact that the anti-slave people were so seriously anti-Catholic. Yeah. Mark, hold it there. got to take another break. We'll be right back. America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Mark Knoll. America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization. Mark, the Civil War uh, is a theological crisis, as you've written in another book. Uh, does this, does the failure of Christians who all read the same Bible, the failure to resolve the issue of slavery, did that delegitimize um, this Bible civilization idea in the eyes of post-Civil War elites? Uh, 
uh, not just elites, but uh, just across the board. I mean, okay. there, there were still campaigns. The, the temperance campaign against drink would eventually draw a little bit on the Bible, although, of course, the problem there is that the Bible is hardly a temperance book. The New Testament is <laughs> right, not, a, not right. a, a total absence book. But yes, uh, for elites, as, as well as for uh, ordinary people, elites, would uh, some of them actually turned away from um, the Christian faith in general. Just the, the, the war was too terrible. Um, by the time we get to the 1870s and 80s, it's the age of industrialization, and uh, there is a little bit of, of uh, working-class Protestant, Catholic, uh, and uh, kind of uh, educated Protestant protest against how industrialization is uh, pauperizing populations, exploiting working people, but, but very little. Just compared to the agitation over slavery, just a drop in, in the bucket. So yes, mm-hmm. it, it does. The Bible remains uh, prominent. I mean, it, it's still a, a much-read book and, and very important to churches, and the publishers are doing land, land office business. But the, the book ends in 1911 with the celebration of the 300th anniversary of the King James Version. And, and uh, through the help of my wife, we scouted out dozens, hundreds probably, of, of, of the accounts of the celebration of the King James Version. Very, very few of them are religious in any specific sense. It's mostly how great the King James Version has been for American democracy. So it's really the Bible has become a function of the civil religion of the United States much more than anything else. Wow, that early, 1911? Yes, I mean, uh, now, the, 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 the book does end there, but the epilogue brings the story, uh, tries to say at least a little bit about the, uh, the more recent history. The one exception in the large scope of things, is the civil rights movement of the post-World War II era. There you you had a tradition of black Bible believers yeah. who had always thought that when Scripture talked about liberation, it meant spiritual and physical liberation is two sides of the same coin. They're not really listened to throughout much of U.S. history, but with uh, the, the civil rights leaders of the 1950s and 1960s, there were many things that went into the, the, what they were trying to do, but one of the things was the idea that the, the following the Bible was important for American public life, not just as an emblem of democracy, but really for carrying out the vision that all people are made in God's image, all people have innate dignity, all people need to be treated fairly. Yeah, we haven't said very too much about that. Uh, again, that's another uh, Christian tradition there, uh, the African uh, American tradition. Right. Um, you know, I'm, it's something that strikes me as strange is all the attempts to argue on behalf of slavery by appeals to ancient Israel or by later forms of slavery. Those all seem to be ignore that American slavery had a was largely racial. I mean, <laughs> not, not largely, entirely. <laughs> yes. I mean, this this is one of the sobering things about historical study. You, you look back at that era and and say, a few there were a few uh, prominent black voices in the African American community, almost not listened to at all in the white community, and one or two prominent white voices. There's a man named John Fee, founder of Berea College in Kansas, in Kentucky. And when Kentucky was uh, uh, trying to figure out a new uh, state constitution in 1850, 1851, he, he published a couple of pamphlets and said, look, it's just crazy to have any kind of 
scriptural defense for slavery because, and then he wrote this in huge capitals with all sorts of, uh, of exclamation points, all, none of the slavery slaves in the Bible were African. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the, the new Kentucky Constitution that enshrined traditions about slavery passed overwhelmingly. C's position got maybe a quarter of the votes, and, and his, his opposition to enslavement was so strong that he, he, was, he and his family were threatened, and, and they, they had to leave Kentucky and mm. lived in Ohio until the Civil War was over. Oh. So the sobering thing is, we, we look back and say, well, how could people have done that? But then if we're self-reflective, we say, well, well what in 100 years or 75 years will moral people Christian people look back and say, oh, those believers in the 21st century, how could they have, and of course we don't know what they're going to say, because (laughs) we're taking for granted in the way that much of white America, north as well as south, took for granted that when the Bible had something positive to say about slaves obeying their masters, they meant African slaves obeying white masters, which of course was adding to what was in the Bible from what their common experience was, what their assumptions were. I'm I'm curious to know if uh, going back to the Civil War era, uh, how the practice of spiritualism in contacting the dead uh, did that? How did that did that arise as a challenge to the more evangelical uh, traditional Protestant interpretation of Scripture? Yes, it did, and, but it was one of the manifestations, particularly in the 1830s and 40s. There's a famous pair of sisters, a famous family that got, got an awful lot of nationwide press for uh, their seances and contacting the dead. But it was, it was a function of American democracy. How, how do religious ideas take hold when you don't have a church-state establishment, right. when you don't have a monarch, monarch telling you where you should go to church, in, in the United States, it's by how persuasive you can be in convincing the public that you have the right ideas. Um, the Methodists, I think, were the best at this in the, probably the first 30 or 40 years of the 19th century. 1830s, we have uh, the Joseph Smith describing his revelations in the Book of Mormon that takes off s- slowly, but then by the 1840s, the mid-1840s, there's just a lot of people who are convinced that Joseph Smith has had real revelation yeah. from God. Spiritualists are, are also competing. Some of them are closer to traditional Christianity than others. There's even a family, if I'm going to get their name right, the Sullivans, who were spiritualists, moved to England to, to, to communicate with other spiritualists there, actually became serious Catholics, and, never, and, and cer- certainly subordinated then their early interest in spiritualism, but did not give it up. They, mm. they thought it, it could be compatible. So in a democracy, as it, as it exists to this day, if you've got a message that you can convince people is a powerful message, you're going to have adherence. And most of the messages of that sort into the, I would say, post-World War II, post-Civil War era, 1870s, 80s, would have had some reference to, to the scriptures in some way because the Bible is so highly honored by almost all of the population. When you get to the turn of the 20th century uh, and you have figures like uh, Teddy Roosevelt, William Jennings Bryan, Woodrow Wilson, uh, how does the Bible function for them? I mean, uh, you know, 
William Jennings Bryan, of course, becomes known as a uh, he's a Democratic presidential candidate, I think, three times. Uh, but right, exactly. He becomes known then as a, quote, fundamentalist because of the Scopes trial. And How does the Bible function for him? Is it just a function of civil religion, or is it... Uh, this, is, this is an interesting question for the year 1911, because in that grand national celebration for the King James Version of the Bible, Teddy Roosevelt, former president, Woodrow Wilson, aspiring to be president, and William Jennings Bryan, three-time Democratic presidential nominee, within the space of just a few weeks in the spring of 1911, gave well, uh, thoughtful, and very widely circulated speeches on how wonderful the King James Bible was. Bryan's speech was not uh, as uh, effective as a speech as, as Roosevelt and, and Wilson's speech. Their two speeches basically said the Bible is really important because it has laid a foundation for American democracy. Brian said the same thing. He did have some distinctly Christian elements, even with a very strong dose of civil religion. But for for Roosevelt and and, uh, uh, Wilson, uh, the scriptures were just serving democracy. There were actually, uh, I missed a tremendous amount of public attention to the Bible in in that era, and and almost, well, a a huge proportion of it was civil religion. There were Catholic commentators, most interestingly, who said, well, the Bible that you're relying upon really is the Bible that the monks in the Middle Ages passed on to you, and then there would be a lot of criticism from some of the Catholic authors Mm -hmm. of the King James Version. But there were also two or three Catholic authors who said, Yes, the King James Version has been a blessing. It's a good translation. It's been a way in which many people have found their way to God. But in America, it is customary to treat the the King James Version as being more important than the message that the King James Version (laughs) delivers. In other other words, the, the criticism was, well and good to have this kind of reliance on the Bible, but, but remember that it's the Bible that's most important and not its positive effects for an American democracy. There just were not many people, Protestant or Catholic. Actually, there were uh, Jewish voices, Solomon Schechter, one of the really important Jewish leaders of the early uh, 20th, uh, 19, 20th century, said something of the same thing when he commended the King James Bible, commended its uh, a, a positive effect in American history, but then argued very strenuously that American Jewish population needed its own translation of the Bible for spiritual purposes. This is the time where the fundamentalist modernist controversy is starting, and you have um, Protestants in particular who are, are, have been marginalized within their own denominations in some way. Um, they, I would imagine they still have a very vibrant understanding of the Bible, uh, right. and they are they arguing that the traditional denominations of which they're leaving, that they have somehow lost uh, any real reliance upon the Scriptures? Yes. Uh, I do try to take that up in the book, although it's a, it's a more complicated story than I was able to deal with adequately. Uh, those who become to be called fundamentalists uh, insisted that the Bible was a supernatural book and should not be read, as some of the, the more radical modernist critics said, is just, just another ancient history book. So in that sense, uh, 
the, the fundamentalists stood with the, the, the basically all of the great Christian traditions to the present. There's actually, interestingly, in the late teens and 20s, there's a little bit of Catholic and fundamentalist complementing of each other. Huh. It, the way they did it was usually backhanded. These Catholics are all wet, but they certainly honor the Bible. Those fundamentalists are all wet, but they certainly <laughs> honor the Bible. Yeah, yeah. So the way in which fundamentalism factors into the entire story, however, is that um, the way in which fundamentalists interpreted the Bible was very strongly influenced by the way in which pro-slavery Bible defenders use the Scriptures. Interesting. There's, there's very little uh, uh, scholarship. There, there is a reliance upon what you just read on the page. Um, and that, that was a connection that, that tied some of the post-war, post-Civil War to the antebellum period. Mark, thanks once again for great work. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Thank you. My privilege. Thank you. Dr. Mark Knoll, America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization.